and you feed one or the other. You either feed your flesh or you feed your spirit. Which one are you feeding? Are you drawing closer or getting further from God? That is the question that Paul is asking. So we're in Romans chapter 8. Tonight we're going to be going through the first 30 verses of Romans 8. Uh, Romans 8 is a little bit longer of a chapter. It's got a whole lot of meat to it. Now here's the thing about Romans 8. It follows Romans 7. Shocking. Romans 7 was what we talked about last week, which in a way is a little bit of a downer, right? There's more realization of what we will not be capable of doing in this body in Romans 7 because we still exist in the flesh and we're in this war between flesh and spirit and this body is still broken until it's glorified when Jesus returns. Uh, we are left in this shape and Romans 7 talks about that but then following that is this wonderful chapter of hope. What I think of when I think of Romans 8 is uh, something that's very near and dear to my heart as someone who's a little odd. Because I really like whiteboards. Anyone else here with me? I love like whiteboards and chalkboards and things of that nature. But there's a couple of things I don't like about them. First, unrelated to the topic, but I'm venting so you get to hear it, is that I'm left-handed. So I always get giant smudges on the side of my hand when I'm writing on chalkboards and whiteboards. But the second thing that really bugs me about them, which is more connected to what we're talking about, is as you use them, while you can erase it and write over it and what you see is legible, there's always this sort of residue that's left over, right? And that stuff irritates me to no end because I want it to be clean completely when I start writing on it. And so I have found, this is for your good housekeeping pleasure, for those of you who enjoy whiteboards, uh, here's a couple of things that really work to clean these things and make them usable again. Now, one, if you're really ambitious, you can use Windex on your whiteboard and you can wipe it clean. The problem with using Windex is it also takes off the finish. So if you use Windex to clean your whiteboard off, it will be completely white, but then you need to refinish the board. And here's a way you can actually refinish the board. This is how you know how ridiculous I am. You can use antifreeze <laughs> to refinish the board. All right, now for the less awful versions of what you can do with the whiteboard, uh, you can use sanitizer, like hand sanitizer, because the alcohol wipes the board clean. But then your house also smells like a hospital. So here's the best one, and I saved it for last. You can use toothpaste. Did you not know this? You can use toothpaste to clean off the whiteboard, and then it smells minty fresh when you're done with it. Uh, and at Christmas time, you know, like a candy cane. So it's, it's great. And then it leaves back this completely, like it's brand new. Now, I think of that when I'm thinking about this because, one, this is something that just gives me joy in my life. 
as silly as it is, but a very clean whiteboard before you draw on it or write on it makes me very happy. And so this is something that gives me a little bit of a joy, but it, it's so clear. If you've ever cleaned off a whiteboard that you've used for a couple of months, you don't really notice the residue until you actually see how white it can be when you use one of these remedies. And then all of a sudden, it's so much cleaner than it's, it looks newer than it did when you first bought it because you get to see the contrast from dirty to clean. And that's how I feel the transition from chapter seven to chapter eight. That's what it reminds me of. That transition from understanding the dirt and grime that Jesus has cleaned us from and the stuff that we still war with in the flesh. But then we come to chapter eight and it starts this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's how Romans 8 starts. So buckle up and get ready for the ride. Now, <clears throat> depending on what Bible you have, if you're reading in Romans chapter 8, uh, you might see a comma after that with these words that follow, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, this is very likely in addition to the Scripture that was a scribal note that got added later on to the text. Because as we found older manuscripts, that little spot after the comma is no longer there. Because what it actually is, is very likely attributed to chapter, verse 4. So it's likely that a scribe in the original times, when they were copying the text for themselves through Romans chapter 8, had noted that Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is connected to verse 4. And that little parenthesis statement got added. So if you were reading it the way the original manuscripts read it, that little comma piece wouldn't be there because it's repeated in verse 4. So I'm going to read it as it would in be intended to be read. Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's our starting point tonight. Just to remind us a little bit of where what comes before that last week, as we were finishing chapter 7, Paul comes to this conclusion as he's looked at this war between flesh and spirit, and he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so he takes a recognition, and as we talked about last week, knowing your enemy, and Paul recognized that the enemy was within, it was the flesh himself, and he says about himself, who can deliver me from this problem? And he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the point is, know your Redeemer. And following that is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we're not going to get there tonight, but I want to read the final, verse of chap the final verses of chapter 8, just so you understand how this chapter is bookended. Because it starts out with, there is therefore no condemnation. But in verse 38 and 39, it says this, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So when you look at the book ending of chapter 8, how it begins and how it ends with the meat in the middle is going to be all about is the fact that because you believe, if you believe in Christ and his resurrection and you put your faith in him, your slate is completely clean. The list of things and the thoughts that you've had and the things that you've struggled with and the lusts of your flesh, they have been wiped clean like toothpaste on a whiteboard. That The contrast is gone. You are completely clean. There's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. And as the chapter ends, it says, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. So what's in the middle? Let's find out. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now this is an interesting piece of literature because he uses the same word to mean a couple of different things. The word law. Now sometimes Paul is referring to the law of Moses, meaning legal terms. Things that you are, if you commit this act, you are then found guilty under the law. So it would be like today, if you're going 55 in a 45 and a cop sees you, you are guilty of the law that is written. But then there's also a law that's like a principle, right? So there's the law of the spirit that he's talking about, which is more like a principle. Like we would think of the law of gravity. It's a constant, but you can't break that law. It just is, right? It's a it's a thing that sets things in motion. It's like Murphy's Law, which for me is anytime I go on vacation. You know what Murphy's Law is? It's anything that can go wrong will go wrong. That's Murphy's Law. And so this is my experience with vacations. My honeymoon, we decided to take a train down to Florida in February. Because why wouldn't you want to get out of New York in February? So we took a train from Rochester to New York City. Everything running on time seems good. We get down to Penn Station and then up on the board that announces the trains that are coming, it says our train's running on time. Then five minutes later, it says one hour delay. Okay, not too bad. We wait the hour. No. First of all, I'm a Knicks fan, and Penn Station is right next to Madison Square Garden. If you walk out the steps, you'll see Madison Square Garden. I desperately wanted to do that. But I didn't, because I didn't think I had any time, because I didn't want to be late for the train. If it was only delayed, I wanted to be able to get on the train. So we waited for an hour, and then light up on the board says, our train delayed one more hour, okay? And it does this for 13 hours. It only starts there. This isn't the end of the story. So we get on the train 13 hours later than we're supposed to. We had set up something with you know, the travel agency for everything to be ready for us when we go. But this also means that when we get to the train station in Florida, our rental car is supposed to be there. But because the train was delayed 13 hours, the rental car place is now closed. So now we're in Jacksonville, Florida not even in St. Augustine where we're supposed to go. And now we have to take a taxi to the airport on the other side of Jacksonville to, get a, to pay for our rental car 
a different rental car, then we've already paid for one because the rental car place at the train station is closed. So we have to go to the airport, get a different rental car, and then take that all the way back across Jacksonville down to St. Augustine. And then we get to the hotel. All right, so you see where this is going. I'm not going to finish the story because it's just bad news after bad news. The trip itself was fun once we got down there. But Murphy's Law is something that happens to me. It's this principle, and that's what he's talking about. He says, the law of the spirit of the life in Christ, this is this principle of things that just happen. They snowballs you closer and closer to God, made you free from the law of sin, meaning from the legality of the law of Moses. And so the law of Jesus, the principle of being freed in Christ, set the chains free from the law of Moses because you are now looked at by God through the lens of Jesus' righteousness. So you're set free from the law of sin and death. From, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to to the Spirit. If that sounds like confusing language, let me clear it up for you a little bit. What Paul is saying is the reason you're free is that humanity is sinful and God, who is just, requires punishment for that sin. But our God is so loving, he decided to punish himself. He sent his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross to put on human flesh so that he could punish human flesh that lived perfectly on our behalf. So rather than punish all of us, anyone who comes to faith in Christ is now set free because the punishment of God was satisfied through Jesus on the cross. Because a human had to be punished who lived perfectly. And so he chose out of his own loving goodness, instead of punishing one of us, punishing himself through his own only begotten son. Jesus Christ. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh and their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, what is this talking about? It's talking about, do you live according to the Spirit, or do you live according to the flesh? Do you let your body and the sinful flesh lead you? Are you led by your passions, or you, do you lead your passions? That's the question. And what I thought of when I was thinking about this, you're welcome, because I have a two-year-old. This is how I'm going to explain it to you. I was thinking of the book, if you give a mouse a cookie. If you don't know what this is, let me explain it to you. I've had to read this lots because I have a two-year-old. There's a little child and there's a mouse in the house and he sees the little kid have a cookie. Now the mouse wants a cookie. And so the kid gives the mouse a cookie. But if you give a mouse a cookie, he's gonna want a glass of milk. And if you give him the glass of milk, then he's gonna want a straw. And then when he eats his cookie and drinks his milk, he's going to want a napkin. And it just keeps going and going and going and snowballing. And it ends up pointing 
going right back to the point where after he goes through all of these things that he desires because you keep giving more and more to him, that ultimately he ends up wanting another cookie and the cycle starts over again. And this is the idea. If you live according to the flesh, the flesh is always going to want more. If you're greedy and you are consumed by the desire for money or material things, that you will never have enough. Your house will never be big enough. Your car will never be nice enough or new enough. That's how it works. If you are controlled by lust, you will never see enough. You will never have enough. If you are controlled or consumed by the flesh, nothing will satisfy you. You will always want more, just like if you give a mouse a cookie. And this is, that's the easy way to describe it to a child. But if you live according to the Spirit, a similar effect takes place, but in a different way. You're not consumed by needing more. You're consumed by wanting more of God. If you're living in the Spirit, as you dig into the Word, do you want to know it deeper? Do you want to know more of what God says? Do you want to experience more of God's love? Do you love how it feels when you know that you're clean because of the sacrifice of Christ? Do you want to grow closer to him? In your relationships, do you want the people around you to draw closer to him? Because as they draw closer to God and you draw closer to God, you get closer to each other. And so if you're living in the spirit, you're continually working to get closer to God even when you trip up. You still see you want more of him. You want more of the word. You desire more worship. You desire more of him. But if you're living according to the flesh, your flesh will never be satisfied and it will always consume you. You'll always need one more midnight snack. You'll always need one more drink. You'll always need one more night with the boys. You'll always need one more thing because it will never be enough because if you give him us a cookie, he's gonna want more. And that's the way your flesh works and you feed one or the other. You either feed your flesh or you feed your spirit. Which one are you feeding? Are you drawing closer or getting further from God? That is the question that Paul is asking. And then he says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. This is he is telling you, if the spirit is in you, if you believe in Christ, the spirit is in you. And you can have victory over the flesh. You might not win 100% of the time, but you're going to have a winning record. Because you're going to draw closer and closer to God as you feed the spirit. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, who raised Christ from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead will give you life, will help you overcome, will help give you victory over the flesh. We already know what it did. It rose Jesus from the dead. It has the power to help you with your struggle. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not in, to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And Paul is saying now, if you've received Christ, you are now adopted into the family of God. You now have a relationship with God the Father. You get to call him Abba, Father. This actually is really unique because Jesus, when he taught his disciples how to pray, and they said, Jesus, how do we pray? And he says, the first thing he says when you start your prayer is say, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. That's unique. That was a change in the standard. Recognizing the relationship you now have with God because of Jesus is unique because in the Jewish mind in the first century and still today, if you're praying to God, you would often call him Hashem, meaning the name. You wouldn't even call him by his name. There's this completely separate otherness of God because of how holy he is. God is still that holy. You just get to have a relationship with him because of Jesus. We are no longer separate from him. We are adopted into the family and we've become heirs to the throne because of our relationship with Christ. Now, another thing that they would say as they would go through their feasts, they would often recite this prayer that goes like this in Hebrew, Baruch Atah Adonai Elchenu Melech HaOlam. What does that mean? It means, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. And that's how God was referred to at all of the feasts. When you were spending time with God during the Jewish feasts, he was still considered, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. His title and his job that separated you from him was put forth early in the prayer. But Jesus changes that, and Paul points this out. You now call God Abba, Father. You start your prayer with Father God, our Father in heaven because he's not separate from you anymore. You've been adopted into the family and you have a direct channel and relationship with God because Christ dwells in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that, they, that we may also be glorified together. And here's the promise. Because of Christ, because of our relationship with him, we get to have a direct relationship with God through that relationship with Christ. We become heirs and we're adopted into his family and we are promised that when Christ returns, our body will be glorified and we will no longer be subject to the sins of the flesh because we will be changed. Our bodies will be glorified so that we can be more like Christ. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because of the creation itself, also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Not only are we going to be redeemed, but all of creation will be redeemed when he comes back. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs 
together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. We are eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. And all of creation is wailing and groaning and labors with birth pangs. This is similar to language that Jesus used in Matthew 24 when he's talking about his return. And that creation itself would seem to have these types of contractions that would get closer together. As we get closer to the return of Jesus, it should be evident because the contractions are getting closer and closer together and the signs are getting closer and closer together and more severe and more intense. Boy, doesn't it feel like it, like we're on the precipice of that coming. So as we celebrate this Advent season, we're not only looking forward to Christmas and remembering what Jesus did, but looking forward to what he will do when he returns. Verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And there's this interesting piece that Paul throws in there. When we're connected to the Spirit, the Spirit even knows things that we can't put to words. There can be moments in our prayer, in our silence, or even maybe out loud if you have a gift, where you can pray in groans that don't make sense to you because the Spirit is calling out from something deep inside of you, trying to communicate with God something you can't put to words because of the deep connection we have with the Spirit of God inside of us. Now that is a relationship that I want to have with God. Especially as we get closer. And as we approach this next verse, this is a very famous verse. Uh, it's usually in the realm of a lot of people's favorite verse. This is the verse that saved me. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This was the very first Bible verse I had ever heard in my life. I was just about 16 years old, and I was invited to a youth group, and this was the message, was talking about this verse, and I couldn't get it out of my head. All I knew is that I wanted to know what it meant to love God and to be loved by him and what it meant to be called to his purpose. What it actually meant to have purpose, something bigger than yourself. And it consumed me and I asked that night what it takes to be a part of this. And the youth pastor prayed with me and my life has been on this trajectory ever since. This is the thing that saved me, God's word coming to life in me. This verse is unique and often gets misrepresented. Sometimes the world rephrases it in this way, in that everything happens for a reason. It's not what it says. It says, 
all things that happen will work. God will work together for good. But it doesn't say for comfort. It doesn't say God will work together for your ease. For your good. And sometimes for your own good means being uncomfortable. Sometimes it means that life's not easy. And sometimes it won't make sense this side of heaven. But God will work things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. This is for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And what this is talking about is the intense authority and foreknowledge of God. It says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Meaning, God knew what you were going to do. Now, what does this mean? Well, I'll tell you. I know that if I put something on the table that my two-year-old should not have, she will grab it. I didn't make her do it. I didn't make her make that unwise choice or choose that wrong thing. I just knew it was going to happen because I know her that well. God, with an eternal mind, knows you even better than I know my daughter. And so whom he foreknew, foreknowledge doesn't mean he forced you to make any of the decisions. He just knew because he knows you so well. He also predestined. Now, this is a confusing word because predestined often gets equated with, well, that means that God created you to be saved. and Did he create others to not be saved? Well, no, of course not. Because here's the problem. Being, to be predestined, predestined means to be elect. Being an elected person doesn't mean you're a saved person. Let me explain. In the Old Testament, all of Israel, the nation of Israel, were the elected people. However, there were a lot of people in Israel, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find out that didn't follow God. Those people did not have faith in God. However, David, who consistently did horrible things, always brought his heart back to God because he was earnestly seeking God and had faith in him. So, being elect is not the same thing as having salvation. So being predestined might mean being elect, but being elect and being chosen doesn't mean that you are saved. Being saved means putting your faith in Christ. And if you put your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to you. And what did chapter 8 say? There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I'm going to conclude with this. Those who are justified, those who are saved, those will be the ones who get glorified when he returns. And we'll get there next week, but remember the last words of Romans chapter 8. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present or things to come, 
nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So whatever's coming at you this year or next year, whatever struggles you have, whatever the flesh is trying to get you to fail towards, feed the Spirit instead, because there is nothing that's going to separate you from the love of God. If you have trouble believing that, remember the cross because that's how much God loves you. His one and only son came here, lived a perfect life, did not sin, yet gave himself up to a torturous death with so much anxiety that he bled sweat beforehand. They mocked him and put crowns of thorns in his head, beat him and whipped him, and then nailed him to a cross between two common criminals. And as they were doing that, Jesus looked down at the crowd and said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Because that's the love of God, and nothing can separate you from it. So don't let anything separate you from it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your love that is that intense. And your desire to not pour out your wrath on us meant that you were willing to pour it out on your own son, on our behalf, so that we could be called your children. Help us to have the faith to put in you, to not miss the message and to not miss out on this truth, to not be condemned, to have our slate wiped clean because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Help us to experience your love and to share that love with a world who desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.